I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Don't Call Me Shirley edition. It's Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. On today's show, Unorthodox tells the story of a young woman escaping her Hasidic community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and thereby also her arranged marriage. It's a four-parter on Netflix. And then we're joined by Jesse David Fox of New York Magazine and Vulture and The Good One Podcast to talk about the state of comedy in an age of pandemic. And finally, this was Julia's week to comfort us with a movie. And so she picked the 1980 comedy classic Airplane! Exclamation point. Julia, I cannot wait to talk to you about this movie. <laughs> you are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. And hey, how are you doing? Hello. I'm delighted to talk about Airplane with you guys. Superb. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Stephen. Good to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you. Okay. Before we actually fully dive in this week, Julia, we do have an announcement. What's uh, what's up? Yeah, we have an announcement. Um, Slate, like many other journalistic institutions, is facing financial challenges right now as the ad market is really collapsing with so many businesses facing challenges from the coronavirus pandemic and the shutdowns to fight it. Um, and they are changing some podcast schedules, including ours. We are going to be going bi-weekly. Um, we'll be coming to you every other week and hope to be returning to a weekly schedule as soon as is possible. Um, we thought about this a lot and we've decided to take this moment to try to bring you an extra specially excellent version of the show, um, maybe taking advantage of the longer window to dig a little bit more deeply into some of our topics or tackle things that we wouldn't necessarily have had time to tackle on a weekly basis. So we hope to be bringing you a show that's just as sparkling as we aspire to every week. And of course, in each of those biweekly episodes, we'll have a Slate Plus segment. And we are, of course, all ears as to what you would like to hear us discuss. Uh, the single best thing you can do to help restore us to weekliness and to generally support Slate and all of the work and all of the great podcasts that it produces is to subscribe. So if you've been on the fence or thinking about it and you can afford it right now, it is a great, great time to subscribe to Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash culture plus. Uh, you will help sustain this show Slate's many great shows and all of the wonderful journalism that Slate puts into the world. Um, and if you've been on the fence, we'd be extremely grateful. Again, slate.com slash culture plus. In the meantime, we love hearing from you. So please do email us at culturefest at slate.com. If there's a type of segment you've always wanted us to do that you think might be more doable on this schedule, we are all ears. Um, and, you know, it's been, I think, really important for all of us to connect with each other during this very, very weird moment in history and life. And it's been really meaningful to us to hear from you all during this time. And so we are here. We will still be coming to you regularly. Um, and we hope to be back weekly as soon as we can. Julie, if I could just add a quick note to that. I just wanted to say that this was a hard decision for us to go by weekly. We were trying to figure out how we can continue to make the show on a reduced budget for the magazine. And we thought about putting part of it behind the paywall or doing other kinds of solutions. And ultimately, we just decided that we would rather continue to do the show that we've been doing with all the moving parts that you're used to and just do it less often and try to make each one as special as we can. So we really want to go back to being weekly again, and we're really grateful for your listenership. 
Esti is short for Esther. She's a very young woman, 19 years old. She finds herself locked in an impossible life. She's a member of the Satmar movement, an ultra-Orthodox Hasidic sect in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Her mother has fled to Berlin to start a new existence, and who can blame her? Her father is a community drunk. I mean, who can blame him, too? Her life is defined by what she is not allowed to do. She's not allowed to keep her own hair. She's not allowed to swim in water. She's not allowed to play music. This last is especially painful. That's her passion. Most of all, she's not allowed to not marry Yankee, a nice enough but I think we come to realize somewhat limited young man to whom she doesn't want to be married. So after a nightmare stint as a newlywed, Esti decides to escape to Berlin. Unorthodox is loosely based on a 2012 memoir by Deborah Feldman. Uh, It's a German-American production from many of the same people behind Deutschland 83, a very, very widely, highly praised uh, show. Let me set up the clip a little bit. Uh, Esti finds herself in Berlin, and she falls in with a crowd of young multicultural, uh, very, very um, uh, open-spirited music students, and they decide to all drive to the beach together. Where are you from, Esti? Uh, New York. You don't sound like you're from New York. Never been anywhere else. Where are you from? Yemen, but I grew up near Munich. And I'm from Israel. Ahmed's from Nigeria. Clement's German, but your parents came from Poland. Poland, right? And Robert's the only one of us who's actually from Berlin, so he can answer all your burning questions about the war. <laughs> My grandparents lost their whole families in the camps. So did half of Israel. But we're too busy defending our present to be sentimental about our past. Dana, let me start with you. Uh, this is um, gotten a lot of attention. It asks a lot of, I think, very pointed and relevant questions beyond simply what it is to be a member of a Hasidic sect, like what it is to be Western and secular in uh, in uh, the contemporary world. What do you make of it? I mean, I, I highly recommend it. It's it's not quite like anything I've seen recently on Netflix or at the movies or anywhere else. For one thing, it's it's this four-hour-long format, so it's it's not as long as a regular TV show, but it goes into way more detail about, for example, daily life in the city community than a movie would be able to. Um, and within those four hours, I feel like there's two different threads, right? There's the Berlin story, which then becomes a kind of... Um, mystery chase plot with her husband and this other sort of um, prodigal son of the Jewish community being sent to look for her in Berlin. So there's a kind of fish out of water comedy with them looking for her, but also some real suspense about whether they will find her and what will happen if they do. And that's combined with, you know, almost more anthropological approach of looking at what it's like inside this ultra orthodox community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And I thought that one of those two worked better than the other. I don't know if you guys will agree with me, but I was much more interested in the Williamsburg flashbacks than in what was happening in Berlin. Shira Haas, the young woman who plays Esty, is so great that I loved every minute of the show just watching her, and she was fantastic. But it's the Berlin part of the show that is fictional. This is based on a memoir by Deborah Feldman, who went through a very similar experience up to the point of fleeing to Berlin. That's where the fiction of the show starts. And to me, there was a bit of an imbalance between those two parts. And I was always a little bit more interested when we were back in Brooklyn. And that may just be because, you know, it's closer to our own lives and experience. And, you know, if you've lived in New York, you're aware of those enclaves in Williamsburg that are Orthodox Jewish and Hasidic. And you don't know anything about what goes on within them. So that part was so fascinating that I was always a little bit disappointed when we got into fictional Berlin and the music students. But that said, I highly recommend all four hours of this. I thought it was great. 
Oh, I don't know, Dana. I I mean, the the Berlin stuff feels funny because it's magic. It feels like almost unreal. Like she immediately befriends without much trouble a impossibly beautiful group of jovial conservatory students, like the place she goes for coffee. I mean, I guess maybe she did this on purpose, but she just happens to be near this youth conservatory and fall in with the group of people interested in exactly what she's interested in. Um, I think actually the the woman whose memoir this is based on did end up in Berlin eventually. Um, so she did, th- that, that part was also based on her experience, but that wasn't in the memoir that she wrote because it took longer for her to get there. But I agree that there's sort of this sense of um, like, wow, it's really all going to work out for, for this young escapee. Um, but I kind of liked that because I think the sort of spy thriller slash heightened version of the life she has been missing where whether, you know, man or woman or gay or straight or from no matter where you're from, you could possibly grow up in a world where you were expected to devote your life to the pursuit of art and the way in which she learns a bit about how the rigors of that life have their own constraints as well. Um, I don't know. I enjoyed that counterbalance. Like, I think that's part of what makes this show so snackable. And I think, you know, just in general, the sense that it's like a chase story, like someone's on the run and someone's pursuing them, which you usually see in like a espionage context Mm -hmm. makes the anthropology of this feel, you know, gives you more patience for the attention of the anthropology part of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, weirdly, I agree with both of you. If it's possible to square that circle, uh, the ethnographically specific and quite granularly detailed aspect of that one half of the story, I think, is just beautifully done. It looks amazing. You feel as though, Dana, you're right. You've penetrated into the heart of this kind of open mystery that surrounds people who are not part of that community but live right next to it in Brooklyn. Um, that's it. Struck me as very authentic. Uh, Shira Haas is amazing as this character amazing to look at, amazing to listen to. You want to follow this person on our journey. And then, Julie, I agree with you. I think just in terms of dramatic necessity, you need the person to escape. And it would work well to have elements of suspense about you know, how gangster-like are these two young men going to go? Moisha, especially, the one who accompanies Yankee. Yankee, we're meant to believe, is basically a sympathetic human being. I mean, that's the tragedy of it, is that he's not he too is being ground down and destroyed in some basic human way by uh, the, um, you know, sort of ideological rigidity of this sect. And Dana, I'll just come back to the question that I sort of semi-started with, which is the viewer of, the the target viewer of this is going to be a basically middle-class, basically Western, basically secular person for the most part. Did you feel as though that in any way the show was prejudiced or tilted towards the prejudices of such a person, or that the prejudices of such a person went somewhat slightly under-examined by the show? Yeah, I mean, speaking as such a person with maybe those blinders on, I'm not sure that I'm able to answer that completely. I know that there was a piece in the foreword by a woman from the same sect, the Satmar sect, who had also left the community, uh, who objected to the movie and thought that it stereotyped um, members of the Hasidic community and made their life look, I believe she was saying, more repressive than it actually is. It was not totally clear to me what her objections were as a former member of that community, especially given that she also had chosen to leave it. Um, 
But to me, as an outsider, I thought it towed that line incredibly well. I mean, it would be so easy for this movie to have villainized, for example, the husband, Mm -hmm. Yankee, the character who comes after her in in Berlin, uh, who's played by Amit Rahab, this Israeli actor who I thought was just fantastic in the role. And I think the movie treats him with such delicacy. You see how trapped he is by the culture as well. He is certainly a, a, a repressive husband in the sense that, you know, he believes in all kinds of patriarchal laws of, of that culture. And I think the show does want us to see her as fleeing that for her own betterment and her own freedom. But it doesn't see him as an abusive or cruel figure. There's a whole part of the storyline when we're in the flashbacks of their marriage and what went wrong about how they have difficulty having sex. And there's not an implication in any of those scenes that he is forcing himself on her. In fact, on the contrary, he's he's trying his best to, to understand what sexuality is because both of them were brought up in such a repressed way that they essentially made it to the point of marriage without understanding how human reproduction works. And to see them struggling with that is really painful for both characters. But you might have to talk to someone who's a little mm, bit closer right. to that community or who is just religious at all um, to 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 see whether that's a fair interpretation or just mine as a as a secular person. I agree that the portrayal of Yankee is really great because you see that he's also scared and nervous and confused and ill-prepared for some of the things they face. Um, but I did like the line. I was glad to read that perspective from um, the woman writing in the foreword. And I, I, you know, one point she makes is that a lot of people in the community are, are portrayed as cold, humorless, and obsessed with following the rules. And she points out, I have always known Williamsburg to be a lively world of gossip, drama, peer pressure, materialism, competition, family, and busybody neighbors. The people in Unorthodox are not that. And I did, that did give me a flash of, you know, we basically have sort of one sympathetic woman in, in her grandmother who is, you know, a Holocaust survivor who is very bought into the Satmar rules. And I think part of why Esty is so excited to get married and so bought into the idea of, of this arranged marriage at the beginning and seems to feel, you know, scared, but happy. I think the wedding sequence was really, really extraordinary and was apparently put together, you know, with tons of help from consultants from within that Satmar community and essentially trying to film the ritual of a wedding in that culture exactly as it occurs. And not only is the wedding sequence, I think, one of the high points of the show, I believe it happens in episode two. Um, But if you want to learn something about how the whole show was put together and specifically the wedding sequence, there's a really great short on Netflix, which you can find after you watch the show. I recommend you you watch it after because it might have some spoilers in it. It's 20 minutes long and it's just one of those behind the scene featurettes that interviews the, the makers, including the Hasidic consultant who helped to make the wedding as, as accurate as it apparently is. And, you know, talking about the costumes and how they were created, how hot it was dancing in those fur hats on a summer day as they were filming. So I highly recommend after you watch this, if you want to dig a little deeper, watching that Netflix making of short. I would say my own, well, this is very well done and people should watch it. But um, my, my quibble with it is that an ethnography is equally possible. A critical ethnography is equally possible, you know, when it comes to supposedly open, supposedly liberal Westerners, the culture from which I come. Like it is possible to hold that at least half an arm's length and ask what are its codes, what are its pecking orders, what are its codes of inclusion and exclusion. And instead it's really represented almost completely as just boundaryless, fluid, universal community, which which it isn't. It's like 
it's both it's culturally socially and economically specific in in the same ways that i'm not saying it's not better i'm not saying it's not mine i'm just saying that it is no more rooted in the natural order of things than any other way of living in the world is and and in order to set up the thrust of the whole thing it's depicted as a little bit of a utopia anyway it's unorthodox it's on netflix it's streaming uh it's uh, four episodes one hour each and it's uh, beautifully done check it out apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on all your favorite products at apple two percent on all other apple card with apple pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, before we go any further, Dana, we have some business, I'm sure. What uh, what do you got? Yeah, Steve, a couple pieces of business this week. First of all, our Slate Plus segment this week is going to be about quarantine fitness. We talked about quarantine cooking a couple weeks ago. Now we're going to talk about what, if anything, we're doing to not just turn into big flabby blobs sitting inside all day with nowhere to go. And I think we all have very different answers to that question. And of course, if you are not a Slate Plus member yet, you can become one by going to slate.com slash culture plus. As Julia discussed at the top of the show, we are sad about having to go bi-weekly rather than weekly after having done this show every single week together, not even missing, I don't think, hardly a vacation for over 10 years. And I know we ask for this every week, but in these straightened times when journalism is really in a perilous situation all around, your membership and your support are especially important and especially appreciated. So again, if you want to become a member for $35 for your first year, you can always go to slate.com slash culture plus. Now, the last piece of business I want to do, which we didn't do last week because Julia had not quite settled on her comfort movie yet, which turned out to be Airplane. We'll talk about that shortly, is to talk about the comfort watch for our next show. And it's going to be my week to pick. So once again, I am doing my thing of choosing a fairly dark and not all that overtly comforting movie for my choice, just because it's one of my nearest and dearest. Steve, this is like my one of my local hero level movies that I love so much that you and Julia may possibly be dead to me if you don't share my love. And that is Nicholas Ray's noir masterpiece in A Lonely Place from 1950, starring Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. I've never gotten a chance to write about this movie or podcast about it, and yet I've watched it and thought about it more than, I don't know, just about any movie I know. And apparently you and Julia have never seen it. Is that possible? I I hadn't seen it because I wanted to read the novel first, which I have now done, actually endorsed the novel probably about a year ago or so. I can't remember quite, but... Right, the novel by Dorothy Hughes, right, which I have not read, I know you love, and I may try to pick it up and read it before our next show so that we can talk about both book and movie and how the adaptation works. And in its own way, it's a really, really unnerving, cold-blooded read, brutal in its own way. And I know the movie's quite different, but I somehow wanted to live with the after effects of the novel for a while before before seeing the movie, and I'm ready. I am so, so ready. Jesse David Fox is a writer at Vulture, the multimedia culture arm of New York Magazine. He's also the host of Good One Podcast. Jesse, welcome to the GabFest. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Thanks for coming on. You've said on your show that everything is different living in this pandemic, and it's bound to affect the way people make comedy. We we really want to get into that, but I'd like to start with something more macro, if that's okay, which is that I, you know, 
I don't know how old you are, but I'm old. I'm I'm fucking old, right? <laughs> and so I used to watch SCTV and Monty Python back in the 1970s when irreverence was something you had to search for, you know, late at night or on PBS or at odd hours, you know, the very first SNL season, I, I kind of remember. And over the course of my lifetime, comedies become big comedy. It's, and that means that comedy is one of the ways in which we process reality um, and process like public tragedy in a weird way. I mean, that's the funny thing about it. Like comedy is, is how Americans come to grip with what's happening to them politically, economically. And when there are big public tragic events, I mean, you would have thought 9-11 would have been impossible to process comedically, or if one tried, one would botch it horrifically. And yet the onion proved, within a matter of days, proved us all wrong, that there was a publicly therapeutic function that comedy had taken on in American life. And I just, I, I'm, I always think about this because it's as big almost as anything that's happened in terms of culture in my lifetime. And I, is this something you think about at all? Just how we got to the point where you have the job title that you have? Um, I mean, I think about it constantly. It's probably the thing I think about most. Um, I'm working hypothetically on a book about sort of partly how that rise of how we decided to start taking comedians seriously. Um, it was like 2002 or so is when people first started saying there was this group of people that's getting its news from The Daily Show. And that plus, I think also how we used comedians during 9-11, as you said, all just sort of created this thing where like these comedians are so good at talking and processing information and then being able to articulate at times when it's so hard for everyone else to articulate that it, they prove themselves as sort of a public good. And then, then by 2009 comedy explodes again and has still been, you know, I called it a boom six years ago. And I think at this point it might be, or hopefully will be just like, this is what comedy is. I do want to just now ask the question around the segment, which is, here we are, there is big comedy, and here we are, a synchronous global catastrophe is unfolding. What's the relationship between the two? I mean, it is fascinating to watch. I mean, like, comedy is of, you know, all art forms, all live art forms are somewhat about connection between audience and performer. But for comedy, it is more extreme. I mean, like, comedians really depend on audiences for material for understanding what works. But I think what you're seeing is when you remove the audience, it sort of like breaks the entire idea of what stand-up is. I um, I was talking to Hannah Gatsby for my podcast for a future episode, and she's, she sort of is, it's like without an audience laughter, it's not even stand-up anymore. It's sort of, she's like of the opinion if a joke falls to, to an audience without any people in it, is it still a joke? And I think it, it questions all of that, where at the same time, I think there's a tremendous need for what comedians can do. Um, as we saw with 9-11, it, the, this processing that we're all sort of doing, what feels like in slow motion, we, I do feel this, this missing element of like, I want a person who can kind of articulate this moment. And I, I, I mean... I don't know if I've found one, at least not in the way that we've expected. Yeah, it does not yet feel like we've gotten our onion issue about this moment. Uh, you know, I mean, I've, we've watched some stuff. We've seen the the live from home SNL that, in, that delivered some 
some catharsis and some here's a bunch of humans who are funny performers responding to the same circumstance we all find ourselves in, but it didn't quite feel like an enraged and revelatory document about the moment. You know, comedy has many functions. And as you said, I think catharsis is the one it's still able to do. And I think SNL, especially the most recent episode, was really able to do it successfully. But the grander thing of sort of giving people the vocabulary to speak about it themselves, I think people, I think especially comedians overrate how much people watch comedy to just learn how to say funny things or to have funny things to say to their friends, but also to have insightful mm-hmm. things to say to their friends or just literally to know what they can say where every day I feel like everyone's going through the same thing of like not knowing how to start an email. Like, are you supposed to say, how are you? How's it going? Hey, I know, you know, that sort of things. We we sort of look to comedians to sort of tell us what we're supposed to say to sort of feel like normal people. Jesse, on a recent episode of your of your podcast, good one, you talked to Maria Banford and Roy Wood Jr. about this specifically, about doing comedy under the quarantine for coronavirus. And they had really different things to say. I was interested that uh, it seemed to me in a way that, that Maria Banford was was more able to adjust to maybe being the incredibly introverted person that she is. Um, she was more able to adjust to the idea of Zoom comedy and, you know, sort of not having laughter there in the room, but continuing to work it on her stand-up from a distance and was saying that it was more important to keep working than to actually have an audience. And she's trying to work in that void. Roy Wood Jr., on the other hand, was, was talking about the future of comedy clubs and saying that he can't imagine them ever dying and that, you know, essentially that the live audience is an essential part of doing comedy. I, in a larger sense than the quarantine, even after the quarantine ends, it's obvious that live performance is going to take a while to get off the ground and that many venues will have either closed or suffered financially. And I'm wondering what you think of the future of stand-up comedy, improv, etc. after all this is over. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I go back and forth between really hopeful and really um, worried. I mean, it's so it's an experience to be with other people and laugh. And I think on that end, it's made me appreciate stand-up more. It's made me pre- appreciate improv, a thing I hadn't seen for a really long time, a lot more because it's so about that connection. On on the other hand, I can't imagine being in an audience with people. Like it, you know, Roy Wood Jr. said a thing that I that I will I can't get out of my head, which is if someone coughs in an audience right now, it's, it would be like if a gunshot went off, and mm-hmm. and that is. You can feel that. Like, I mean, he is really good at talking. So, like, he really was, as I said, is able to process it. But you can't imagine sort of people feeling safe enough to laugh. And sort of being safe is what allows comedians to, like, push boundaries to talk about difficult subjects. So, I I don't know. Like, it's it's one of the many things. It's just because it's so connective, um, it's, it's an extreme of sort of what we're expecting when we get back to whatever normal is. One question I have is just to zoom out, like part of what made the, and we keep talking about the Onion, the iconic issue of the Onion that came out after 9-11, and if you are a listener who don't, doesn't remember it or didn't check it out, like go Google it and find it. It was it just really hit the exact right blend of mournfulness, shock, tragedy, and and political critique. And, you know, having... John Stewart as this kind of symbol of the fact that there was a, you know, what was not then called the resistance, but there was a group of people who found the leadership not tolerable and um, wanted a, a kind of ready scrutiny and critique on it. 
uh, existed. And I've been trying to think, who is that under Trump? Like, what is the sustained politico comedic response to the Trump administration? And 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 is 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 the, is there that? And I'm just not watching it. Like, is that what John Oliver is? I think people do find his kind of long form research screeds to be valuable in this way. But is there some similar function? I mean, I guess part of part of why I wonder if there hasn't been a kind of cathartic, important comedic document yet of this moment is just that comedy is kind of in a different place in terms of its relationship to political critique now under Trump. There's so much there that I mean, I, that there's the uniqueness uh, that already existed about comedy under Trump and the struggles to do comedy about Trump in terms of lasting comedy. You know, there's there's the ability for catharsis about Trump and just sort of like allowing people to check themselves and sort of know what's the truth. But sort of like that comedy we felt that really was able to shine a light on something different has not been able to be done with Trump because Trump is such an obviously bad president in terms sort of like in just sort of in the truest definition of obviously like he's a very shallow target and at the same time you have so many more outlets so at the same time as all these things are happening comedians comedy is getting more and more niche fewer people are trusting the same person so i think when when you want comedy to be connective to it is harder when there isn't sort of agreed upon people. Um, this is this is all to say, I imagine there are people, there are a lot of people who John Oliver is the person you're looking for. There's a lot of people who Trevor Noah is the person you're looking for. There's a lot of people who it's Jesus and Mero. There's probably a lot of people who it's someone on Instagram that I've never heard of. Um, it, it, it It is frustrating. So for a thing like this, I imagine there are people who are getting a small dose of what, we're all hoping for every week there may be getting like five minutes of relief or five minutes of sort of understanding opposed to sort of like a grand gesture where we all unify and say like this comedy did the thing that we needed it to do. Right. I mean, the, and, and the kind of therapeutic exorcism that the daily show was night after night during the Bush years had to do with taking something, you know, liberals were really on their heels in a way. And, and, and the, you know, establishment liberal political response to Bush was so weak and so scattered that you needed someone to point out every day how absurd, the extent of the absurdity of it. Whereas, as you say, you know, Jesse, Trump is like, that's all right out on the on the dinner table as pungent. And, and uh, you know, you don't need anyone to complete that circuit for you. So in a weird way, I don't think people are turning to comedy. I mean, maybe this is to see it through my own solipsistic lenses, but in a weird way, the Daily Show equivalent now is the Daily. You just want like Michael Barbaro and gray, po-faced sobriety to remind you that seriousness has a pl- has a has a place in the world. And absent seriousness, we're going to go to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, that's interesting. It is partly why you see even in the in the a lot of late night shows that we're talking about. The, the moments that we talk about are fairly serious and very straightforward. I mean, um, when I when I spent a day with at Seth Meyers right after the election, it was very clear that how they approach it is very serious. The person who 
writes the Closer Look segment came from news. He was sort of like a perfect unicorn for this job because he also had an improv background. But like he was hired there because he had a background in news. He was able to process all this information. And like people appreciate just sort of person, people doing the work of just like, I can't read all this stuff. Can I not get it on a minute by minute basis? Can you please just like give it to me on a slower pace than I'm getting it? All right, Jesse, before we go, what has made you laugh the hardest since the onset of the pandemic? When I watched the most recent SNL, the one where the second of their two at homes, and I think when Keenan brought back What Up With That, which is a character that's <laughs> done famously on the show, and he hadn't done for a, a while, him um, seeing that, and I sort of squealed, with glee, just the idea that he was doing it. And so I remember really laughing really hard at that, but it was a sort of different laugh of, then it wasn't a laugh of surprise as much as sort of like laughing of like seeing an old friend again, which I think is the laughter I'm seeing happening more often with myself in these uh, times that we are in. Uh, that's a great answer. All right, uh, Jesse David Fox, it is great to have you on the show. I hope this is the first of many appearances. It would uh, truly be a dream. So thank you so much. Awesome. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. Airplane is a 1980 comedy classic, really. It's written by the Zucker brothers, Jerry and David, and also by Jim Abrahams. It's a broad, really surreally broad parody of the airplane disaster movie. It was popular in the 70s. There's also one from the 50s. It's kind of half based on. It starred Julie Haggerty and Robert Hayes and a bunch of other great comedic turns in the movie. The film was a it was funny. It's both a huge hit. I mean, it was, I remember when this movie came out, I saw it when it came out in the theaters. I think I probably even saw it multiple times. It was a, it was, it it made a ton of money off of a very small budget, which opened the eyes of Hollywood quite wide. Um, But it was also kind of a cult classic. You know, it had, it, it had a core of fans who just would repeat every line from it over and over and over again. And it's now regarded as a pioneering classic of American comedy. Uh, and now we're going to ask the question, what it was like to rewatch it in 2020. But first, let's listen to a clip. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Doctor, I've checked everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? Oh, I flew single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying altogether. It's an entirely different kind of flying. I mean, the amazing thing about this movie, Julie, I should say it was your pick this week, and I, I, it's about 90 minutes long. You could really lower the dipstick anywhere in those 90 minutes and pull out something that's like that and going to make you laugh. But before, before we get into how tasteless and weird this movie is to watch in 2020, you were non-existent when it came out in 1980. How did you discover this movie? 
I'm not that young, Steve. I was existent, but I didn't go see it in theaters, nor do I remember Janet Madeline's rave review, which I <laughs> was shocked to learn in our prep for this episode that this movie was like immediately hailed as a comedic triumph. It's, it was. It has yep. the quality of a movie that kind of came out and banged around and then got rediscovered. But in fact, it was just like, wow, this is a real funny way to make a movie. What a funny movie. And cheap, too. Let's do more. Like... I had no, um, yeah, I, I did. I had no cognizance of that until I prepped for this segment because I've never thought about this movie before. I have merely watched it many times. Uh, our faithful listeners may have noted that we didn't actually announce last week that we were doing this because I, it was my turn again to promote, and I was like, "What movie do I love besides Sneakers? It's only Sneakers. <laughs> it's the only one." Um, and uh, and then I was like, "Well." Truly, by the metric of what other movie have I seen the most times, it's Airplane, because it was one of two VHS tapes that we owned when I was probably in my tweens, just judging by which living room I remember watching it in. Um, And so I probably watched it like every month from when I was 10 to when I was 14. And then I'm not certain I've seen it since. Like, I think maybe one time 10 years ago, my husband and I showed it to his uh, little siblings. Uh, watching it again, there are definitely pieces of it that do not age well uh, in terms of the race and gender politics of the uh, transition from the 70s to the 80s, but it's still really freaking funny. I, I I came away still pretty delighted by it. And I think, you know, it's um, one thing that is interesting to me about it is just the joke density. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it, 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 you know, your point about the dipstick, like any... Everything is set up for a joke. There's like nothing happening on screen that isn't ostensibly funny. So when you think about things like The Simpsons, mm-hmm. um, where yep. the rhythm is just like, why why not have a gag in a shot when you could have a gag in a shot? It just feels like a precursor of The Simpsons or 30 Rock or some of that kind of super dense, super jam-packed, like fruitcakes full of jokes type comedy that um, that has been kind of a, a, a watchword since then. And then just the kind of full commitment of the B-movie concept and that even though there's there's jokes everywhere, um, everyone's playing it straight. I mean, there, there, or, there was an oral history in the AV Club, which we read in preparation for this, where they talked about casting the movie and just really trying to find these kind of B-movie a- actors and people who were not known for their comedic chops because what they wanted was people who could you know, just deliver these lines absolutely, absolutely straight. So uh, while I cannot, as a modern human, endorse the jive talk portion of this movie anymore, I still find it very funny. And I do, you know, I was trying to think what it was about tween me that this appealed to, because it's all (laughs) making fun of things I knew nothing about. Like, Everything is a joke. It's a it's a parody of Saturday Night Fever. It's a parody of like B movies from the fifties and seventies that I never watched. There's a scene that's a parody of the iconic scene from From Here to Eternity. Not a movie I was familiar with uh, at the time that I like fell in love with it. Um, there's a joke that I only just this weekend got. You know, the p- part of it takes place in the um, kind of recovery hospital after uh, Stryker is injured in in a raid gone wrong in the war. Um, where one of the injured vets thinks he's Ethel Merman, or it's actually played by Ethel Merman. <laughs> Definitely didn't know that was really Ethel Merman as a kid. Like, I was just like, oh, I get it. Like, I know as an 11-year-old in the 90s or whatever it was that 
Ethel Merman is a famous, you know, figure. There was some like kind of yearning to know about the culture probably that informed, you know, the reflected half jokes and just kind of, you know, wanting to be a part of the grown up world that would know what all these references were and sort of understanding that it was referring to things without totally knowing all the things. It was very funny to watch it as a grown up and get more of it. Dana, is this the first time you'd seen it, or when was the last time? Oh you saw no, it? no, That's no, no! I was definitely not the first time I'd seen it, but I didn't grow up watching it over and over again like Julia. I think I probably saw it, you know, in the theater once, and then maybe once on cable years later, and certainly not in I don't know more than twenty-five years or something. So it was a weird delight to revisit. I mean, vis-a-vis what Julia was just saying about the the very referential and referential specifically to to old American culture, right? Hollywood and even older than Hollywood. It's like there's sort of vaudeville level jokes in here, you know? Um, that was what really, really struck me on this rewatching was the, the zombie re- resuscitation of all these old Hollywood tropes and even actors, right? I mean, Leslie Nielsen and Robert Stack and Lloyd Bridges and Peter Graves, all of these people would have been familiar at the time as, you know, former Hollywood hunks who are now these silver foxes, you know, doing comedy in the sky. And uh, and that really struck me on this rewatch. That, that Also that kind of Mad Magazine aesthetic, which is what Janet Maslin said in her very positive New York Times review, that it was sort of Mad Magazine humor on film. And I did grow up getting Mad Magazine at our house. It was my, my brother's sort of thing that his Mad would arrive and he would add it to his box of Mads and we would all pour over it. And it was very similar, the humor in Mad, in terms of being for young people, really for teenagers or even tweens, but the jokes all coming from this older register of American culture. So there was this kind of sense that, you know, by reading it, you were also learning what to make fun of, you know, and uh, that's a, that's a really <laughs> fun part of, of seeing this movie now. I think that the stuff that holds up the best, I mean, I had, at times I was laughing in pure shock at the level of, you know, humor that you could get away with in 1980 that now is just so tasteless, not just the, the race, the jive talk translator jokes and things that Julie was talking about that really don't stand up and are uncomfortable, but there was a running joke about pedophilia, there's a running joke about suicide, Oh yeah. there's the scene where oh, the one lovely. female passenger is getting sort of hysterical and wrought up and people get online to slap her and and talk sense into her and like one guy on the line has boxing gloves I mean it's so over the top and absurd and now just so incredibly tasteless but it made me think about just what a different world we we grew up in you know even like the smoking section joke right which of course has turned into a visual pun that his actual ticket is is on fire um but I think the stuff that holds up the best really is just the absurd, absurd visual puns. And the one I wanted to gesture at that I know Julia loves, too, is the ongoing joke about Robert Hayes, the hero's drinking problem. <laughs> 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 Which is simply that he doesn't know how to drink, so he puts a non-alcoholic liquid in a glass and then throws it into his eye. And every time that happened, I died. It's just so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I mean, what I find really revealing is that as you describe one of the more tasteless jokes that no one could get away with today we're laughing right like that's I, the amount of laughing i did in spite of myself rewatching this was was really startling i mean if three minutes in i was like ah this is torture i can't redo this i mean this is such an a relic from my deep past i have no interest in revisiting it all of a sudden i'm like herniating i'm laughing so hard it it kind of weirdly still works and 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 to the extent that taboo is always a source of the deepest laughter, God, I laughed at a lot of things I'd be ashamed to admit I laughed at. I mean, the scenes where that little boy comes into the cockpit 
And so let me make a defense of a kind of defense of that aspect of the movie that for all the things that the movie makes fun of that it it does seem to be pretty equal opportunity though I know that that's not an excuse and it, if you came out with this movie today you might as well move to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean that said the the funniest thing that it makes fun of is straight white older men Dana, you sort of pointed to this. I mean, so much of the comedy that works in this movie comes from the fact that Peter Graves, who delivers these weird pedophilic comments, the reason they're funny isn't that pedophilia is even remotely funny. What makes them funny is that Peter Graves is an actor associated in the American mind in 1980 with one thing. He is Jim on Mission Impossible. You're a mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it. The most single, most po-faced, straight-faced, straight man people would have been familiar with from movies or TVs, and he doesn't fucking crack. He basically is saying these really repellent, really outrageous, really fucked up things as if he's still Jim, and then they don't stop there, right? It's like they keep throwing more, you know, uh, central casting, slightly washed up white guys at you to play this sober greatest generation type lloyd bridges leslie nielsen and robert stack play this sort of type and that type comes in for it so unrelentingly for its for its self-seriousness in a way that maybe excuses a little bit the way in which other social types come in for it over the course of the to me that comedy works really really well and it launches the police academy movies with leslie nielsen but um i julia i'm curious i I find this movie so elemental. It's like judging the sky or trees in a weird way. It, You know every joke, right? It looks like I picked the wrong week to give up sniffing glue. It's a hat. It's a brooch. I mean, every almost every joke, and there are about a thousand of them, worked its way into the consciousness of moviegoers. Like, it's just, it's hard to, how do you step back from it? It's like it is like stepping back from your own DNA and and, and saying what would I be like without it. I mean, I th- to me, what was most interesting about watching it now is that it's just a fascinating document of the pivot from the seventies to the eighties, right? I mean, there's all these Reagan jokes, and it was written and made in a moment where Reagan was on the political scene, but not yet the president. Um, I do think you're right, Steve, that there's an equal opportunityness to the humor, like nothing, nothing is safe from from mockery um, that helps uh, it age a little bit better than some other things from its era. But still, it's a document of a world where, you know, that one of the running visual gags is that all of the instructions on the plane are written in both English and Spanish and all the Spanish is... Mm like this kind of pigeon jargon, right? Like you are no smoka as as the Spanish version of no smoking. And right. that's essentially a joke at the expense of the idea of a bilingual country. Like that's not great. We wouldn't do that. I'm not sure I would classify the drinking problem one as one that hasn't aged well. I think that joke, I put it in every show. Couldn't be, <laughs> could a show be improved if you had the drinking problem joke in it? Yes. Like, and I guess alcoholism is also not funny, but um, sorry, I will not, I will not. Uh, that was not one of the jokes that made me uncomfortable or felt like it aged badly. That joke just seemed like a <laughs> freaking hilarious, perfect bit of comedy that will stand the, stand the ages. Um, but I think the kind of purity of the the unwillingness to be reverential about anything is part of what helps the kind of mischievous spirit of the movie hold up a bit. 
um, even if there were parts of it where I was like, ooh, guess I made Steve and Dana spend their weekend watching this. <laughs> well, it's only 88 minutes of, of being offended, yeah. so I can take it. Can I mention two things that we haven't yet that I think are just absolutely central to this movie's success? Oh, my gosh, yes. So one of them, of course, is Julie Hagerty oh, as yes. as the stewardess, love interest, eventual co-pilot, right? I mean, really, it's it's her movie to an amazing extent. Even though, as you say, Steve, it's all about poking fun at these old white guys played by these old Hollywood actors. I feel like she has this old Hollywood element as well. She's this dizzy dame right out of Screwball, you know, and she just plays it so perfectly straight yet hilarious and gets exactly what kind of movie she's in and what she's doing. I just feel like she's Carol Lombard worthy in that role. And yeah. uh, and it made me think also of her in Marriage Story last year playing Scarlett mm-hmm. Johansson's mother mm-hmm. as a so, sort of similar dizzy dame in a way and, and just still very funny and wonderful. And the other, and this really underlays every moment of the movie and is a giant part of its success, is the score by Elmer Bernstein, who's another old Hollywood hand. Elmer Bernstein, who scored... I don't know, movies from the 50s, like The Sweet Smell of Success is his movie. Um, the Magnificent oh, wow. Seven is his movie, I believe. I mean, he was, you know, the, the lay on the strings, Hollywood score guy, and was an unusual choice for this score. And then afterwards, he sort of became the comedy score guy and went on to score Animal House and other big, you know, sort of um, broad comedy hits of, of that period. But I really noticed his score on this rewatch and how he... Is he's doing Mad Magazine musically in a way, right? So he's got these sappy violin love themes when the two lovers are talking, and then he can change in an instant to this, you know, airport style disaster movie suspense score. And um, there's there's really a lot of use of music in this movie, and it's exquisite. And reading again that oral history, that great long oral history of, of how it was put together, apparently Elmer Bernstein absolutely loved this movie, and uh, the filmmakers talk about him seeing it for the tenth time and still mm-hmm. laughing just as hard. And I think that comes across. <laughs> And his music, which is full of wit. That yeah. wonderful. All right. Well, the movie's airplane, and we derived comfort from it. I'd be curious to know what the listeners' uh, relationship to the movie is. And if you haven't seen it, maybe don't. Because we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get some emails if you do. But uh, the Zuckers it, are canceled. All right. Uh, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, well, then uh, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Dana, Dana. 
Uh, Stephen, I guess I am going to endorse something that I suggested in a latter day moment that we might do as a topic this week because it became unexpectedly a big cultural deal, but we already had our topics chosen and we like them. So I will stick with this for just an endorsement. But if you didn't see any of the Stephen Sondheim live stream that happened uh, in honor of his birthday the other night, it's his 90th birthday this year. I think his birthday has already passed last month, but as a kind of quarantine tribute to him, a whole bunch of Broadway stars and others got together and did a live concert concert of Sondheim songs on Sunday night. I didn't watch it live. My daughter, who's an inveterate theater nerd, was glued to the screen and living through all the drama of, you know, the show starting almost an hour late and having no sound at first and uh, really almost creating its audience by having those technical problems and delays. And I could tell from Twitter that it was going to be a huge thing from when it started and heard her upstairs just singing along, laughing, loving it. If it's too much for you to watch two entire hours of a recorded live stream of Broadway songs, I was just going to point to what I thought some of the high points were, and I haven't seen the whole thing yet myself, but I'm kind of revisiting it song by song. And I'll start with Melissa Errico's version of Children in Art, which is a Sondheim song that I wasn't familiar with at all and that she interprets really, really beautifully in a great setting. There's a duet of Beanie Feldstein and Ben Platt singing It Takes Two, uh, super adorable, and they're they're both incredible singers. Michael Cerveris, who is somebody I had seen on Broadway before, um, singing Finishing the Hat, another great Sondheim song. But if you only watch three songs from the Sondheim live stream, I would make them, I believe, they're the very last three. And that is the most gifable of all that you've probably seen photos from, even if you didn't watch it, which is Meryl Streep, Christine Berensky, and Audra McDonald singing Ladies Who Lunch Together while swilling their alcohol of choice. That was absolutely divine. My, my daughter called me into the room for it because she knew I would flip. She and I have watched both the Mamma Mia movies together endlessly, so we both absolutely thrilled to that. After that, it was Patti LuPone in her basement, which I've already endorsed on this show, singing Anyone Can Whistle really beautifully. And then finally, the closer to the show was an absolute killer, and if you survive it without just becoming a shell of yourself, I will be shocked. It's Bernadette Peters giving an acapella rendition of No One Is Alone from Into the Woods and uh, and sort of breaking up a bit as she does it. You know, at moments her voice breaks and she's choking back tears. It's obviously sometimes is someone who's very important to her. She starred in the original Into the Woods on Broadway. And um, yeah, so I've already given you a lot of homework, but if you just boil it down to one song, please, please watch Bernadette Peters singing No One Is Alone acapella. It's it's the theme of the pandemic, and it's just gorgeous. Uh, that I really sound. enjoy Dana giving us the skinny and being like, if you only make time for three songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask Julia how you were going to limit yourself to only three. No, clearly, I mean, I should have watched this, and I wish we thought to do it as a segment, um, because I don't... I, I just have a huge hole in my knowledge about Sondheim and Sondheim is everywhere this year, including in the Julie Haggerty starring movie, right? You know, Marriage Story had two Sondheim sing-alongs in it. Um, plus, I think there were a couple other big Sondheim hat tips this year. So anyway, I will I will check out at least those three songs, if not more, uh, on I just recommendation. For whatever reason, and maybe it was, part of it was being live, and, and it has to be live. I think some of it would work taped, but for whatever reason, of all these celebrities in quarantine singing from their basements that we've talked about and that have been going viral, usually to be, to be laughed at over the last month and a half, this was the one that felt like a real show to me. It seemed like there were people gathered around their virtual hearth, just really thrilling to each song and each surprise star as it, as it came along. And so maybe it won't be the same thing to watch it recorded, but I still recommend those three. Hmm. All right, Julia, what do you have? Um, I 
want to recommend a story in the Los Angeles Times by one of our reporters, Deb Vankin, about a man named Ben Barcelona, who is a retiree. He was an immigrant architect in Los Angeles who, when he retired eight years ago, began a habit of visiting a Los Angeles cultural institution every single day of his life. Um, and he had a kind of a set schedule. He would do mocha on Mondays, the Broad on Tuesdays, the Hammer on Wednesdays, LACMA on Thursdays, the Getty on Fridays. Then he would go to galleries on Saturdays and then visit the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels on Sundays and occasionally would deviate, but basically did that every single day for eight years. Um, and Deb has written just a wonderful profile of this man and his kind of devotion to um, the aesthetic and what it has meant to him to no longer be able to uh, have this regular pilgrimage as part of his life. He's 81. Um, he describes celebrating a socially distanced birthday with his daughter and then also how he started walking the streets of Los Angeles and finding art there, including in a um, Kentucky Fried Chicken building that in the manner of some California establishments is shaped like a giant chicken and or chicken bucket. So uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful feature on a really interesting denizen of the city and how he is responding to the moment. Uh, so again, the author is Deb Vankin. The piece is called This 81-Year-Old Was LA's Most Devoted Museum Goer Until COVID-19 Shuttered Cultural Institutions. And we'll put a link to it on our show page. Uh, very cool. Okay, I'm very quickly two endorsements. One is that um, I didn't think I was going to get much out of this, but I clicked through to read a uh, Harper's Magazine a review essay on a new Kierkegaard biography. The biography is called Philosopher of the Heart by Claire Carlisle. The review is called Difficulties Everywhere by Christopher Beha, who I believe is an editor for Harper's. I was sort of, you know, dawdling along, you know, uh, through the first few paragraphs of it. And then as it gets going, it gets really good. It just, it it is the perfect example of the kind of work that a review essay can do. First of all, it recapitulates the you know major touchstone experiences of Kierkegaard's life that make it a completely compelling life biography it reminds you of what his major ideas were places them in a historical context while making it clear why they're compelling now to our contemporary situation but also just kind of to the human condition i mean to the to the to the you know I mean, Kierkegaard essentially he created existentialism right that's basically what he did and though he offered it up with a very unorthodox approach to christian faith in the 20th century we inherit it without the christian faith i mean essentially the major european philosophers of the 20th century you know nietzsche at the end of the 19th century and then Sartre in the you know, earlier part of the 20th century, and Heidegger pick up on Kierkegaard and make him relevant to the concerns of a secular society looking for meaning when we've come to realize meaning doesn't exist in the universe. Meaning is what we make and how we make it, you know, uh, on and on. And uh, and then giving you a sense of why this book is, you know, what the what the quality of the book was, how well the story is told there, and, and, you know, quoting from it well enough that you get a sense of the book. And I just, it, I, you know, this was, I mean, he was. This was a writer, Kierkegaard, who was just like central to my self conception when I was young and callow, and like a lot of those things, you grow out of it and you move on. It's like put away the childish things or whatever, and there's nothing childish about it at all. It's it's it it has a obvious appeal to someone who's you know 
curious about what constitutes the self and what constitutes the mask, which you might be preoccupied by when you're 22 or 23. But it's, you know, it addresses really big questions about about life, uh, that work, and it's and it was done in such a daring way that I think the that's what really hit me is how how daring it was of Kierkegaard to write these semi-fictional, you know, to to write from behind these masks that were meant to be like kind of deeply offensive to, you know, Danish society, 19th century society and mores as a way of trying to get people to understand what was at stake in believing and not believing. I had forgotten this part of the story. He dies impoverished. Like he really sacrificed a huge patrimony in order to live out his beliefs. And it just is, it just, it's a portrait of intellectual heroism and a reminder of how un- unusual that is and what the stakes of that might be. And then the second thing I'm endorsing this week is rewatching Shit's Creek with your 17-year-old daughter. It's it's so good the second time around. It's it's decency, it's humanity, and it's wit are better the second time around. You don't have to wait a half a lifetime to come back around to it, having mostly forgotten it in order to find it refreshing a second time around. Like I almost am looping back from the end of season five to season one with my daughter. And it's just, it is, that show is so good. So very quickly, the review in Harper's is called Difficulties Everywhere by Christopher Beha. It's a review of a new Kierkegaard biography called Philosopher of the Heart. It is a very, very well done review essay. And of course, Shit's Creek, we've talked about uh, to no end on the show. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Dana, thanks a lot. As always, Steve. Yep, total pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us, I say it every week, only because I mean it so sincerely. We get great, great uh, listener feedback via email. So if you're inclined, please do it. We're at culturefest at slate.com. We also have a Twitter feed that's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen Ford. Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, please stay safe and be well, and we will see you soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.